purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reading of it. We thank you that it teaches our very hearts through the Holy Spirit. We receive it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we know what it's like, don't we? At times when something good happens to us, something out of the ordinary happens to us and we can't quite grasp the reality of it. I mean, we know in our heads and in our hearts that it's true, it's actually happened, but sometimes we don't always know it experientially or emotionally. It doesn't seem at times like we can grasp it, like it's, that it's tangible. And, we're kind of, and, and when that happens, we're kind of not able to live in what we've received or live out of what we've received. And it's sometimes what happens, and I don't know about you, but it is for me, maybe I'm just a little bit slower than some of us, but sometimes I have to hear something over and over and over again before it actually takes root and then comes out into my life and I start living it that way. So what do I mean? I just want to give you an example. Um, Karen and I have just recently paid off our house, our house loan, which is a, a real blessing, praise God. However, for a while, it was kind of like we couldn't really grasp the truth of that. The thing is that we had lived in this house for four years and, and, and as renters and then we approached the owner and, and we took out a home loan two years ago and we kind of figured that this is the way it was going to be for a long time but by the grace of God uh, we, we were able to pay it off. So we realised that this house belonged to somebody else once and then it kind of belonged to us, or it really belonged to the bank, but now it actually belongs to us. And it, we, we, it, we didn't really, we knew it in our head, you know, we knew it like that, but we didn't actually know it in our heart, like it didn't feel like we really did. But recently I've been spending some time in my sheds. Did you hear that, fellas? Sheds, two, two, one, one really big one and one smaller one was sheds, yeah. And... Um, and it was when I was doing the work in those sheds that I was kind of like, wow, I'm so blessed to have a shed. And I'm like, no, I'm so blessed that this is my shed. And that, that reality of that fact that we, we own that property was starting to, to come through, which was really cool. Um, and I think our Christian faith is a little bit like this. But it's not, I don't think it's just about that outward tangibility, the outward a sense of it. I think it's also sometimes the inward sense of it. Sometimes for us it's even hard for us to grasp in our heads and our hearts that we truly are saved. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but every now and then this fleeting sense comes over me is, is this real? Is this, is this thing that I say that I believe in a real thing for me? Fortunately, it is only fleeting and I go, no, but no, I know that God has saved me. So sometimes we don't grasp it in our minds and our hearts that well, but sometimes we certainly don't grasp it in our, in our experience that well at times. I think the, the problem is, is that the Bible tells us that we were born in sin, right? We, we, we were born in sin, it's all we've ever known. And, and when we know something in our mind, there's a battle going on in our mind, right? The things of God, are host- where our, our minds, our sinful minds, those minds that are born in sin are hostile to the truths about this incredible God in whom we believe. And sometimes we just need to hear over and over and over again the truth of who we are. The Psalms tell us, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. But I think it's just like, I think it's just like at that, that house experience. So we had it for four years and then it became the reality in our minds that it was now ours and then a little bit later experientially it became ours as well. And I think that's just the same for us when we become born again. We have to actually, it has to take root in our brains, in our minds and in our hearts and then after a while, it starts to outwork. I think we need to hear about the wonder and the power of our blessing and saving God over and over and over for many of us, especially as new Christians, before we actually believe it tangibly. It's not that we're being brainwashed, but we're growing into the knowledge and the reality of who we are in Jesus. One of the things that I found really difficult to believe when I first became a Christian was the fact that I had no part to play in my salvation. For me it was like, yeah, yeah, I heard from God but I had to actually do something in this salvation thing. It took me so long to get past that. I had to hear it from so many different angles, so many different points of view before it was like, aha, now I get it. And now I could live out this freedom experientially that I, that I believed that I had in my head. Now I, and and the, the, thing, the thing for me is that now I have a certain hope to know that I, am, that I had no part in my salvation, but it was entirely God. It was his work. It gives me freedom. Because in the knowledge that he is the one who saves is that same knowledge and hope that I have in the one who brings promises and will honour those promises to us. We have read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. The letter of Peter is a really fascinating letter. It was written to, it was written to Christians in, in, uh, in, in North Asia. It was uh, to people in in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And and Peter was writing to these people who who had come out of paganism. That's all they'd ever known. Paganism that, that offers no hope. Paganism that gives life no real purpose. Paganism that that 
you are always doubting that your God can do amazing things in you and for you. And, and they were experiencing persecution, really heavy persecution, day after day. And you know what it's like, don't you, when stuff comes on you time after time after time, after a little while you get dragged down and you start to doubt, you start to lose hope. And Peter was writing to these people saying, these people need hope because not only are they experiencing persecution right now, but Peter knew that on the horizon was growing persecution, persecution like they'd never experienced before and they needed to be encouraged. They needed to be built up in their faith. So Peter's writing to first generation Christians. Most likely a lot of these were first generation Christians and even brand new Christians. So their, their, their understanding of who God is was probably not super, um, super strong, not, not so super deep. Peter was aware that he, he had to write letters to the elders of these churches who needed to be encouraged, needed to be reminded of, of who they are in Christ, I think of who they are in Christ, the promises that were there, were theirs in Christ, and how they are to live as followers of Christ. So that in turn these elders would take this hope-filled message into the lives of the flock, those that, that God had charged them to shepherd with the truth. What we find is that these truths repeated many times in this book, in this, in this letter of 1 Peter and he comes from different angles and I'm sure Peter knew that people needed day after day to hear this tr- truth repeated so that, the, so that they could make sense of life and so that they could put their trust and hope in Jesus Christ. Now from this passage I think there are three things that I want to draw out this morning. The first is the power of the gospel inwardly. Next is the effect of the gospel outwardly And the third, which carries on from the second, I think, brotherly or Christian love. So verse 22 begins with, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. I think there are three key words that we find in that. We find purified, obeying and truth. These are significant words for us as Christians. These are really highly important words for us. The reality is, church, that as church, as Christians, we are obedient. Christians are called to obedience. Obedience means being Christian. This is the third time that obedience has been mentioned in just 20 20 verses in the first little part of, of Peter's letter. And we know, just as we heard from David Jeremiah this morning, you know that when something is mentioned over and over in just a short space of time, we ought to pay attention to it. Christianity is about obedience. And the obedience here in this verse says it's obedience to the truth. So we have to ask ask ourselves the question, what is the truth that we are to be obedient to? We have to go back to verse 21 for that. Through Christ... You trust in God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your trust and hope are in God or are fixed in God. This is the gospel, isn't it? The truth is the gospel. It is that Jesus Christ died 
And if we go back a little bit earlier in this letter, that his precious blood was spilled for our sins, for our cleansing, for our purification, that he was raised to new life in a glorified body, that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father and that he's going to come again for those. And he's going to raise those who have put their faith in him up. He's raised them up and we too, through Jesus' glorified body, receive the promise that we ourselves will have glorified bodies as our, as a, at our re- resurrection. It's the gospel. This is the truth that we are to obey, the gospel. Repentance. Faith. And in response, baptism. And the power of the gospel inwardly is a purified soul. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. The soul is a bit of a hard thing sometimes for us to get our heads around. Soul, spirit, we interchange them a little bit. They are different but at the same time they're the same. They work together. They're both the immaterial part of us. Uh, the eternal part. And every soul that has been born in this world is contaminated by sin and is destined for damnation. Yet through obedience to the gospel, a man's soul is purified. And I think that is such good news. A, A man's soul is purified not by any work of his own doing, but only and completely by the creator himself. The one who created us is the one who purifies us through the sacrifice of the Son. Secondly, through the power of the gospel inwardly, verse 23 says, a man becomes born again. You know, sometimes I think, think about this, we, 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 we realise this truth that we're saved, but, but I wonder as Christians at times whether we just get a little bit used to this. It just becomes a little bit familiar But I think the realisation for us is that we are miracles. Like every one of us are miracles. God chosen, God appointed, God drawn out, living, walking miracles. And we shouldn't minimise or or, or make little of this salvation that is ours. We are born again, once dead, now alive. This is incredible. This is good news. We recall Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John. He says, uh, Jesus says, you must be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh and that's all sinful but spirit gives birth to a man's spirit. So in these verses, in the agency of our salvation is or our new birth is the indwelling Holy Spirit. In verse 23, the agency of rebirth is the word of God that was preached, the gospel. The word that pierces our hearts can't leave us the same. It changes us. It nourishes and purifies our souls and it lives in our hearts forever. So the spirit and the word are active in our rebirth. How wonderful a thing it is that that which was dead, the spirit of a man, by holy word and holy spirit can be revived and regenerated, made new. This is amazing. 
Sometimes I have young people say, well, so what, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? And I think, I think you know, the, the reality is for all of us, with, even without faith, we have a vitality, we have a zest, we, have, um, we, have, we can move and breathe and we think and we choose and we do all of those sorts of things, but we still call those people spiritually dead. And I think the reason for that is because we're not existing in the place where we're created. See, God created us to be in his eternal presence, to be a people who are so intimately connected to him. That's when we have spiritual life. But outside of that, we're dead. We're not in that place that we were created to do. Sin has caused this incredible divide, a great big chasm, as we sang in that song a little bit earlier, between us and God. But God is the one who brings us life. That chasm, Peter says, this is the result of it. In our passage this morning, Peter quotes from Isaiah saying, all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls. And I kind of find that haunting. I'm not sure how people can find hope in this reality that if, for them, if this is what they believe, that life is this long and you die, you turn into dust. What is the purpose of it? Where is our hope? Where do we get joy from if this is all there is? The grass withers and the flower falls and all that you were becomes nothing. That's pretty sad. All who are far from God, no matter whether they adorn themselves with beautiful jewellery or fine clothes or cover on their makeup or bulk up like so many men seem to be doing or cover themselves with tats, the reality is that it's all hopeless because all of what they do will all fade, they'll all blow away in the breeze unless you were born again. Unless you were born again. Thirdly, the power of the gospel inwardly leads to spiritual maturity in a man's heart, in a man's mind. The gospel is transforming. We don't receive the gift of faith to remain as we are. We often hear this, oh God loves you just the way you are. No, he doesn't. That's why he saves you. God hates the way you are. He will love you at that moment but he hates what you are and he spends his time then transforming you into the image of his son whom he loves. That's the God who loves us. He brings us into spiritual maturity. We're to become like Christ, growing in his likeness. We're to move on from the elementary truths that we pick up in those early days, as Hebrews says, and we grow and move forward to maturity. Peter writes in verse 2 of chapter 2 that through feasting on pure spiritual milk, which is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, that we grow to maturity in the inner man. 
And we've been talking about the power of the gospel inwardly, in a man through the hearing and believing of the gospel. But Proverbs says, what a man believes in his heart, so he is. What a man believes in his heart, so he is. That's to say that there, there, there has to be some outward evidence of the inward change. We should expect to see evidence of faith. If somebody says that they are born again, we should expect to see new life. We should expect to see new joy. We should expect to see new hope in them and living life on purpose. Faith looks like obedience. Obedience is a doing word. The very first effect of the gospel outwardly through the act of obedience as Christians should do in a new believer's life is the command to be baptised. In the book of Acts we read about people who had heard this incredible message, the gospel message that Peter had proclaimed and all of them, it says they were cut to the heart, they believed this, this, this word that had been preached and they said, well brothers, what are we going to do? And the apostles said, repent and be baptised all of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we are baptised, I was speaking to, a couple of weeks ago we had a one church event over at Destiny. And at the end, I don't necessarily like altar calls that much. About, well, not I do love altar calls. I love it when people are challenged to come forward, to make a public declaration of their faith, walk forward and say, I choose Jesus. But I don't like it when people are asked to bow their heads down and be a little bit embarrassed about putting their hands up and and saying, oh, I believe in Jesus. But it happened and that's fine. But what happened is that there was a couple of people in there who had professed faith in Jesus over and over in our youth groups and they put their hands up again. And I think one of the reasons for this is because we, we've believed it in our minds. We've, it, it's, it's come to our hearts, but we've not actually done anything in our body to display the faith that we have. And that's what I think baptism is so important for. We actually go into that water. We've believed it and now we do it. We become buried with Jesus. We die with him. We raise up out of that water. We're resurrected with him and we walk on with Jesus in intimacy. I think that's why baptism is so important for those who profess faith in Jesus. The second effect of the gospel outwardly, I think, is really, really important is that we renounce evil. We've lived in it for so long and we need to deal with that. We need to actually say things like, you know, for whatever reason... We may have some issues with the Catholic Church, but one of the things I really do appreciate about the Catholic Church is confession. Confession of your sins. We need to confess our sins outwardly, spokenly, and as the Bible tells us, one to another. Because when we speak it out, we believe it more. It's really important that we renounce evil. 
Verse 1 of chapter 2, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile, all deceit and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking, taking all those things that we were and disposing of them. This is what I was, Lord Jesus, but by your grace, it's not what I'm going to stay. You're going to change me. You're going to make me into that new person that I ought to be. God, every day I just want to renounce yesterday's sins. And I think it's really, really important that we also say those things. If you, if your mind, men, was entertained on inappropriate thoughts about women, speak it out and say, Jesus, you know where my mind was on those things and renounce them. And in that way you can have the true and fervent heart belief that Jesus heard those confessions and you know that you are free. think when people are, sometimes what happens again in youth rallies and other places is that we can, we can say to people, come and put your faith in Jesus and we can pray for them at the end, but oftentimes we miss this most important thing of saying, you know what, now is the time that we are going to name your sins, speak them out and ask for forgiveness for them. Because sometimes the thought that those sins are still in, oh God can't forgive me for that big sin and we carry it around and it burns a hole in us. We need to deal with those sins. The third, the third sign of outward effect of the gospel in a believer is the most beautiful, I think. And it's brotherly love or Christian love. Christian love is so important. It's not only important for those who are displaying it, no, for those who are sharing the Christian love, it's important for those who are receiving it, that they receive a blessing. And of course, when we bless people with the love of Christ, we ourselves in return are blessed. But I think the other important thing for us is that when we are displaying brotherly love one for another, Christian to Christian, when those people out there in the world who don't know this love see it in action, they go like, I want that. I want that love. Brotherly love is so important. The gospel compels us to love. It's a gospel of love. It's love poured out and we receive this love and Hopefully, in time, it flows out of us. The most loving Christian people I see are new born-again people. Those people who have received the gospel, they just can't help but go out and tell other people about this incredible love that they've found. They just pour it out everywhere. The gospel compels us to love. The King James Bible says, the unfeigned love of the brethren. I love that word. Unfeigned love, unforced genuine, sincere, authentic, candid love without reserve. I don't think, as as God can never run out of love for us, I don't think we, we really can, even though we might feel it, I don't think we can really genuinely run out of love for our brothers and sisters. Peter knew that the giving and receiving of this sort of love has, was a powerful force that would help combat the daily discouragement was, that was coming the, the way of the people he was writing to. But we know it as well, don't we? We might not face the same sorts of discouragements that those people did, but we do every day. Whether our family is acting up and not listening to us, whether we've lost someone or something, whether, whether challenges of sickness come into our lives, discouragement comes all around us and we need to be loved 
But I challenge us that when we find ourselves in that situation, that when you love out of your brokenness, you will be truly blessed and you will find healing in that. Peter knew that loving produces hope and joy. Loving is the way we reflect the Lord Jesus Christ's wonderful saving life into the lives of others. Hope produces in us this capacity to love and when we love, more hope is generated. That's magnificent. That's why the world cannot love like we love, like Christians love. Not that we always do because we don't, but we always can. With Christ in us, we can love the way God wants us to love. We have the resource, whether we use it or not. The faithless of the world don't have this resource. You know, sometimes they feel like they have hope, but it's fleeting. And all the hopelessness that they have in their lives, and it it is there. I mean, I lived for such a long time without hope. And sometimes hopelessness would just well up and you just want to stick it in your back pocket so that you can't see it anymore. That you can pretend it's not there. And you can sit on it, you can squash it down, but you know when discouragement comes, hopelessness will always find its home back in your mind and start warring with you again. We have the resource to love out of discouragement, whereas the world doesn't. Unfeigned brotherly and sisterly love is the outward effect of the inward gospel in us as Christians. And this is the thing. We need to set our spinnaker of love. We need to pull it tight. We need to rein it in. We need it to allow it to catch as much love wind as we can so that we can go full tilt, that we can power on in the love that Christ has poured into us. What a beautiful thing love is. What a beautiful thing it is when it's on display. On display. So I have a question for us this morning. After all that we've been reminded of, and I know that you know this anyway, it's just a refresher, isn't it? Because it's like almost every message that you hear. Church, the question I have for you is, is how are we doing with these things? As I said in the beginning, we need to be reminded of things over and over. We need it to be in our hearts and in, in, in our heads and in our hearts and we need to experience it in our bodies. But the power of the gospel inwardly, the effect of the gospel outwardly, the true signs of it in us as as brotherly love, is it on display in us? When we face difficult times, do we become depleted and discouraged? Or do we stand on the truth? The gospel is in here and it's in here and it's out from us? Do we stand on the truth? Do we display the gospel love? You know, Paul listed off a great big pile of things in in one of his letters and 
at the end of it he says, but the greatest of these is love. Yeah. Has the power of the gospel inwardly changed our hearts and minds? Do we really, really believe that we are born again? Have we honoured the first call, the first command for us as Christians to be baptised? Is the effect of the gospel outwardly visible and experiential in your life? Have you hoisted your spinnaker of love today? I wonder this week whether we can be spinnaker people. Everywhere we go, we are just reining in that spinnaker and keeping it tight, catching all that love wind so that it just might blow on those people who need it. We're the church. We need to love like the church. We need to show the world what Christian love is. Let's determine to do that this week. Let's pray together. Father, what a great thing it is for us to have received the love of Christ through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, through the power of the promises that are throughout the scripture for those who believe. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you saw people who so desperately needed the good news of Jesus, that you drew us in. You gave us the taste of what the heavenly gift is and we believed. Lord, help us this week to be people of powerful love, no matter where it is that we work, no matter what situation it is that we walk through, no matter what discouragements might come our way, Lord, we are overcomers through faith in Jesus. And we give you thanks for that today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.